Good morning, everybody. It's, oh my goodness, it's a new month of the year, February 2013. Uh, and uh, we have, oh, it's a couch surfing kind of Sunday morning show for me because we have the most exquisite and excellent Daniel Mackler uh, on the line. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, Daniel's been on the show um, once or twice before, and uh, I think he's um, just got wonderful, wonderful stuff to say. Uh, he's currently a filmmaker, writer, and musician. Uh, he's based in New York City, but he travels uh, really like a dandelion far and wide. He worked for 10 years as a psychotherapist in New York, although he doesn't do that so much anymore. And he cranks out just the most uh, fantastic documentaries on mental health, and in particular on focusing on ways of treating mental health issues without using drugs that I and many others are not a huge fans of, the SSRIs, the psychotropics, and so on. And uh, you, you've obviously heard him on this show before. You may have actually seen him on, on your couch as well, as he has traveled the world doing a fair amount of couch surfing and uh, hostel dwelling. So, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time, and welcome back. Hi. Nice to be here. So, you can check out Daniel's stuff at iRareSoul. Dot com and um, I there's so much that you've been up to since we last talked it's, it's really hard to narrow down what it is that we should uh, talk about but I think one of the things that is um, very interesting to me uh, is um, well the two things I'd like to talk about is one of your documentaries or I guess you've done two on the recovery for programs for psychosis that use little to no psych meds and also what you've been doing at the Soteria Alaska project I think those things are just amazing Sure. Um, yeah, I've been up to a lot. I was trying to remember when I was last on the show. <laughs> One of the problems for me is traveling so much, I never remember. Uh, time Time takes on a whole different meaning. So I really, I think it was a year ago maybe we last talked, or was it two years ago? I really just can't remember. I think I think probably closer to two myself, but um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a while. But you have been, uh, I mean, we've, we've chatted a few times on Skype, but you've been... Uh, uh, you've been far from the World Wide Web at times, so... Um. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in and out. But yeah, I, uh, I'm just finishing another documentary right now. It'll be coming out in a couple of months, but I've, uh, it's in post-production. And it's, it's all on just the subject of coming off psychiatric drugs, because there's really very little... There's nothing in terms of good films out there about coming off psychiatric drugs, nothing that I've seen... And uh, even the literature on there is pretty scant. The research is pretty scant. So, and given subject. the numbers of people who take it, and but but in some ways it's sold as insulin for diabetes, right? That's the typical uh, metaphor or analogy, I guess, that's used in psychiatric circles. In which case, you're not supposed to come off it. But there are other people who believe that it's more for a quote intervention uh, in more crisis uh, situations, and then you're supposed to come off it. But coming off these things is um, it's really harsh on the system, as far as I understand it, and particularly on, on mental stability. Yeah, it depends. It's, it goes very much person by person. I mean, there are, there's a lot of people out there, when they start coming off, they just feel better right away. So it's not actually difficult to come off. But that's generally for people who've been on a shorter time. My film is more focused also on coming off antipsychotics. But there is, it, definitely, it definitely does talk about coming off mood stabilizers and antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. But more... I, I like focusing on, quote, the most extreme ones, which is the antipsychotics. But on the other hand, coming off like benzos, anti-anxiety drugs, is, uh, it's, it's really horrible for people. That's, that's something, and for many people, those are the hardest to get off of because they're just so absolutely addictive. 
Yeah, there's a um, Robert Whitaker, I'm sure you know, uh, is an investigative journalist who's written um, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which has stories of, of benzodiazepine withdrawal that are just chilling. Uh, it really does seem to be some pretty dangerous and toxic stuff to start putting into your system. Yeah, pretty nasty. Yeah, he's, he's, he's written some of the best stuff. Yeah, yeah, and his, like, his passion for the subject comes through, and he's—I think—he's got some credibility because he actually came into uh, the 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 question of antidepressants or or psychoactive drugs as curious and as well. I'm sure this is you know good stuff and so on. But as he began to dig in, he revealed and revealed to himself and then to the world just all the stuff that was going on that was very destructive. So yeah, it's a great uh, great book to read. And what happened in Alaska? I mean, that, that you uh, you became uh, the the director of this this program. What are they doing up there? That is um, uh, the work that they're doing with the psychotics. Uh, well, Sotir, it's Sotiria, Alaska. It's um, I think in many ways it's the most innovative psychosis oriented program in the United States, perhaps North America. There's actually, there's actually some good stuff going on in Canada too, though. But uh, Sotiria, Alaska is based on the Soteria principle, which came out of North, um, Northern California, out of the Bay Area in the 70s and early 80s, which was a National Institute of Mental Health funded uh, project to help people experiencing a first episode psychosis where they would go into this house and they would live with people who were not mental health professionals, but were instead just chosen because they were good, compassionate, nice people who had a, a comfortable ability to be with people who were going through really intense, extreme experiences. And so they would they would all live together, and basically it was an experiment to see what would happen. And it was uh, there was a, a control group, and the control group was people just when uh, who were experiencing a first episode psychosis would just go into the regular hospital, the mental hospital, and and get antipsychotics. And almost all of the people who went to Soteria, it's like at least two thirds didn't get any antipsychotics at all. And then they just followed up on what happened to them. And the results, this is in the 70s and into the early 80s, the results were profound. And they, that was that about 70% of the people who went to Soteria got fully well, left the mental health system. And in the regular mental health system, it's more than you know, a 10% maybe get better, not, not, not high at all. It's, uh, so, so the project in Alaska is in, was intended as a replication study. And it's all funded by... Um, well, different different sources, but it's not uh, it's not for fee paying. Some of it's uh, Alaskan government paid. Right now, it's funded a lot by the legislature, but it's also funded to some degree by Medicaid dollars and a few different. And there's some other uh, sources, like Alaska has an Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority that that basically has there's a lot of land that's been put into trust that pays um, toward mental health. Uh, alternative mental health projects and this is one that, and so the nice thing about that i mean i i have a, a lot of pros and cons of, of dealing like with state paid uh, systems and programs but the uh, the main alternative to state paid systems is uh, fee, fee paying systems where basically they're only affordable to the rich or for people who are willing to mortgage their homes because a lot of these programs cost 10 to 20,000 dollars a month per person so wait, the program so to live in a house with nice people. I mean, I, I did that in college. It didn't cost me twenty percent or ten percent, five percent of that much. Uh, why would it be so expensive? Well, Soteria, Alaska, would basically cost uh, probably around ten thousand dollars a month per person because it would be five people living in a house, and they either have to rent or own the house, and then they have to have around the clock people being there, and so. 
basically a huge amount of the money just goes to paying people and they're not paid much at all. It's probably between about 10 and $15 an hour to work there. Oh, I see. And okay. So if you had a big just, house and lots of people, you could split that cost among the individual participants and so on, right? Exactly. But it, it, it really, it's, it, it does sound like a lot of money, but in another sense, it's like, well, you're basically paying people salaries and paying for the rent on a house and paying for food and paying for electricity. And unfortunately in the modern era, uh, anything to do with mental health requires all sorts of uh, liability insurances, and then and then there's to some degree of bureaucracy around the organization. So there's different. It's not just two people uh, around the clock earning ten to fifteen dollars an hour. Then there's a few more people. Mm-hmm. Right, right. A lot of the other programs, actually, the most innovative programs for psychosis in the United States, are quite a bit more than that. I mean, I, I do think. Soteria probably, if if they really worked hard at it, and any program could probably come down quite a bit. I mean, I know there are some psychosis-oriented programs in the U.S. that are charging like six thousand, and that's considered a major, major steal. But there's a lot also that are charging fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand a month. And and if you listen to what they do, it, it like your your first reaction is probably similar to yours. It sounds it sounds silly that they'd be charging so much, but then it's also like it can be the things can add up pretty quickly when you're paying people salaries. And isn't it a strange thing? I was just thinking um, about a warning label, you know, on, um, on psychoactive drugs. I mean, of course, they've got the, most of them have this black box label from the FDA, which is the most serious uh, side effect label that's possible. But it would be interesting to see, you know, if the truth in advertising were applied to say, well, uh, these drugs uh, have these horrible side effects, uh, but... Uh, and have been proven far less effective than living in proximity with nice people. I mean, isn't that astounding? It'd be like it'd be like your doctor saying, "Oh, you have uh, you have some sort of terrible cancer. You can go through this radiation chemotherapy that's going to." Or you know, what's much more successful is is live in a house with nice people. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it really is. Well, it's, it's so it's such a strange thing to think of. Yeah, and the, these things are complicated because the problem th- there's a lot of problems with Soteria Alaska. There's a lot of wonderful things there, but a lot of problems also. And it it was in uh, the Alaskan project is intended as a replication project for the one in California, but in actual fact, it's really not a replication of it, and it's its own thing, um, for better and for worse. So, what it, what it was was their their regular executive director got a um, she won a sabbatical grant and. She asked me if I would, uh, you know, basically take her job for three months. So I was up there for four months, working there three of the months. I was just the, right, working as the executive director for Soteria and for another program that's under their umbrella, an outpatient kind of program. And it's pretty hard, though, because uh, the, the main problem with Soteria is that they're not getting people in a first psychotic episode. They're getting people who are coming into the house already pretty heavily drugged, a lot of them for a long time, and a lot of them have been hospitalized several times. And the problem with that is that once people have gotten into the mental health system and the mental health system has gotten their hooks into them, uh, it's, they, they've, and they've been on the drugs for a while, especially the antipsychotics, they're not, they're not getting well that quickly. It's, not, um, it's nothing like someone who's experiencing a first psychotic breakdown or whatever you want to call it, going into their first extreme state or having a really serious breakdown the first time where when people are going through something the first time, often they if they're in a gentle, loving, healthy, mature environment, they come out of it and often pretty quickly. And once they've gotten into the mental health system, the mental health system has a very strong tendency to make people's problems chronic. 
And so by the time they come into Soteria, Alaska, it's not like being around nice people is necessarily at all enough to help them pull out of it because their their problems are too entrenched. They're too uh, their brains have been all scrambled by the drugs, and so the results at Soteria, Alaska, are nothing compared to what what was going on in California. And so it's uh it's, it's not quite the same. I mean, there, there have been some successes there, but at the same time, it's uh it's a pretty rough place in some ways. It's not it's not what. Uh, you know, it's not the Garden of Eden at the end of the yellow brick road. Well, and especially since, I mean, the the application of these drugs to children, which is just one of the great untested monstrosities of, of the modern age, in my opinion, uh, means mm-hmm. that, of course, it's hard to find somebody who's got a men- quote, mental health issue uh, who hasn't uh, had any exposure to the mental health system by the time they might be able to check into one of these facilities as an adult. Is that is that fair to say? Well, that's very interesting because that's what I was told before I went up there, that my whole goal was to try to get people who were actually in a, as would be medically called a first psychotic episode, experiencing a first episode psychotic break. And, but I was told that these people don't really exist. One of the main reasons being exactly what you just said, everybody gets drugged so early now, you know, nowadays when they have a problem that by the time they're 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, which, you know, right around when people are usually having a first psychotic episode that they're not medication naive. They've already been on medication a lot of times for 10 years. But I went up there and I, I took that as a hypothesis because I, I just know in my life, you know, basically almost everything that I've tried that seems a little bit different, there's always been people who have told me it's impossible. Can't be done, doesn't work, won't happen, this and that. So so I, I like to take the challenge, you know, the, the things, the, the, the big nose, it won't work and take that as a hypothesis. So I went up there and Pretty quickly, I mean, the, the logical place to find uh, people who are coming in to the mental health system and, and to see if that's true, the way to test that hypothesis is to go to the, the, the local psychiatric emergency room, which is um, Anchorage has one basic local uh, psychiatric emergency room. And what they said is there, there are a fair number of people coming through there who are having a first psychotic episode who are 18 or older and have never been on drugs before. And... So it was just a, so that was the first thing that was very interesting. I went there with some of the Soteria staff, and we found that out. And they're all looking at each other, going, "Wait a second, we've been working here for a while, and we didn't even realize that these people actually exist." Then the question is, why aren't they sending them to Soteria? And that's a very complicated issue, medically, politically. There's a lot of things that go into it. But the original Soteria house in California was shut down once the results started coming out, and it became very clear that their results were excellent. They uh, they're National Institute of Mental Health funding was cut off, and there was actually a Soteria house, and there was another nearby place that was uh, called Eminon that was very similar to Soteria, and they were shut down also. And they just and so it's not like getting good results um, endears a program to the traditional mental health system because getting good results is, in so many words, pretty bluntly saying, well, we're getting good results doing something that's essentially non-medical. And here you are with the best of modern medicine, spending a heck of a lot more than $10,000 a month per person, and you're ruining people and getting horrible results. And so it was, it was a complicated thing, but that was basically what I worked on doing for the three months there. Aside from doing, I mean, I hung out at the house a lot and just became very much a part of the, the, the Soteria House culture and also the local Anchorage culture. But my basic thrust of my work was going into the emergency room and trying to convince them to send first episode people to Soteria. And it was, it's pretty much a hard sell, but 
it worked, I would say. I think I did pretty well. And pretty much everybody thought I did well. So it was it was also very exciting, but it's not easy to go into uh, a psychiatric emergency room and, and say, listen, send us people who are some of the most difficult people that you're seeing. And I'm asking you to do the exact opposite of what you would normally do. Don't put them on drugs. Don't send them to the hospital and send them to our little house where we'll just, you know, keep them with a bunch of people who are just a bunch of hippies, basically. And let's all just hang out together. And basically, we're going to give them nothing according to what you would traditionally define as treatment. So that's why it's a hard sell, among other reasons. Sure. I mean, you guys imagine liability issues and so on can be can be hugely challenging. Let me, yep. uh, just before we get to the callers, uh, do you mind? And I uh, really appreciate that information. And of course, I hugely appreciate it. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, this is, this is a, my in a way feel. I mean, I have a thousand other things that's going on in my head, that's for sure. But <laughs> okay. I just wanted to ask you a, a big picture question that I think is uh, interesting. Sure. And um, uh, do you think that childhood as a whole yeah. is getting better or getting worse? In the modern era? Uh huh. Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Getting better or worse? I guess it would be by what criteria you're defining better and worse by. But oh, my gut vibe is it's getting much worse, much worse. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. A, I'm pretty ambivalent about the topic. I mean, there's obviously some stuff that's getting better. I think that uh, you know the prevalence of spanking and so on is is declining, and um, there does seem to be some approaches to less coercive methods of of child raising and so on. And I think that's good, but of course the quality of education I think is declining. Uh, of course, the the two parent working family puts a lot of infants and toddlers in very lengthy daycare programs, which I think is really not good. And mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, and economically, of course, more debt gets piled onto the kids. And so it's, it's hard. I mean, I think it's one of these things. It's a complex question. Uh, I mean, I think we can clearly say better to be, oh, of course, and the rise of meds on kids is, is really horrible. But, you know, I'd still rather be a kid now than in the Middle Ages. But in more recent times, it seems that there was some improvement that seems to have been interrupted and in many ways is declining. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think the reason I think it's worse is just more. Seems that there was some improvement that seems to have been interrupted in many ways. Is to call. Sorry, I've asked my twin to join us uh, in the call today. Um, he's kind of annoying. Uh, he just repeats everything I say. But sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I think the main reason I think it's just getting worse is that our world is is really in a decline in a lot of ways. I, this is a lot of what I'm thinking about lately. It's like all the stuff I talk about with psychosis. And psychiatry, it's, which is a lot of my sort of, quote, professional focus is going there, um, how I make my living, etc. But really what I do think about a lot more is about what's happening in the world in the bigger picture and what's really happening to children. And I just think our world is, is the world as we know it is changing so profoundly in such an absolutely negative way that the reason I think it's worse for kids is this is not... This is not a nice world for children to grow up in. And I'm talking about the natural environment, what we're doing to our natural environment, to our planet, uh, to the literally the toxic stuff that's going on on the planet physically. Mm. And but I do think, yes, there are there are a lot of parents that are a lot more enlightened walking around, some of them. And all the things that you described, I agree with all of that. I thought that was actually quite nicely put. But there's just still a thing like Hmm. I think about it a lot. I mean, I was, I really, I love children and I would not want to have them. 
Like it's, uh, <laughs> right. this is no, this is, to me, this is no world to bring children into. It's, it's too messed up. So That's children would be point. chocolate cake to your diabetes, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's one of these things, and as far as I, I understand think- it, you know, based on my sort of readings of psychohistory, these things do tend to, this, that tend to be a fork in the road, that whenever things seem to get better for children, there is sort of a reaction formation of the conservative uh, psycho classes, and they tend to pull things back. So, because of course, there's a lot in this world, as as I think you know. I mean, I know you know. There's a a lot of structures in this world that really can't survive without traumatized children. And everybody who's in those structures, consciously or unconsciously, tends to work towards preventing advances in the benevolent treatment of children. Right. I'm I'm just going to go back to what you said that having children is like chocolate for my diabetes. I think that's actually quite not what I meant. What I think what I mean more is (laughs) the world is like chocolate for uh, a healthy child or a world is like poison for a healthy child. And that's, that's the main reason. It's not that children are toxic to me or to my sickness. It's more like the world is so sick and that it's just not a it's it's a bad place and until the until the world gave me more confidence that it was a lovely place for kids it's like mm, i just think that at least i think we know too much now uh, yeah and i think also the reality of all the stuff that you know has come out about what children really need i think that to me the math to add all the math up is to come up with the reality that it's like this is uh that children deserve more and I, I really do question this modern era of what, um, how good of a place it is for kids. Makes me very sad. Oh, it's desperately tragic. And of course, for those of us who are having children, there is, of course, the challenge that the healthier, the healthier you raise your children, in some ways, the more challenges you're heaping upon them as they move into a world of people who weren't raised in a very healthy manner. So it's yeah. almost like good parenting creates problems. Mm. Yes. Yeah, tough, tough stuff. Well, let's um, move on to a couple of callers, if you would be so very kind. We have some couple of questions in the chat room. And um, uh, I'm just going to see to make sure. Sorry, go ahead. Should I peek at the chat room also? No, you can. I can read them off to you if you like. Um, See if we can find. uh... Oh, do you have any experience with EMDR therapy or any knowledge about it or any thoughts about it? With EMDR therapy, uh, yeah, I, I think I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, I mean, I have friends who are EMDR therapists and EMDR trainers, and I've known a lot of people who have gone to EMDR. Uh, I've actually tried it myself. I had a friend who was uh, a practitioner of EMDR, and so she said she would try it on me a few years ago. I personally just think it's a big gimmick. I think it's uh, it's a bunch of words. But I think any good therapist who has a good intuitive sense of working with people with trauma uh, can do all that stuff intuitively without giving it a fancy title and having to go to all that training and using all the gimmicks. And so I, but I, that said, I still think even though it's a gimmick, um, a lot of therapists feel more comfortable using a gimmick because they lack a deep sense of uh, you know, intuition and confidence in their own intuitive abilities. And a lot of them are pretty traumatized themselves, so they feel more comfortable using this external structure of a thing called EMDR. But I think it can, that said, it, it can help people. Some people it helps. I've known people who said they've been very helped by EMDR. And I think there, 
there are people seeking help for their traumas that um, that feel feel comfortable with a something with a label and a title like EMDR. A lot of people feel comfortable with a gimmick. I mean, I would have people come to me with therapy and they would they would ask me if I could do cognitive behavioral therapy and please, can you do DBT? Can you do, can you do CBT? Can you do EMDR? Can you do this and that and whatever? Can you do EFT? And if I would say, well, I don't actually practice it that way, but a lot of the things that go into making up that therapy, I, I do it rather spontaneously and naturally. They'd get all panicked. Oh, you mean you don't know how to do EMDR? Then you can't help me. And they quit. And it would be, so um, other people were willing to try it out. Try working with a therapist who didn't necessarily follow a thing with a bunch of labels and words. But what I did uh, see, and this is the thing that really troubles me most about things like EMDR, and is that I've seen a fair number of practitioners of EMDR who, um, who use it on everybody. And they advertise as EMDR therapists. And what, what is that statement? You probably know it, Stefan, about uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a tack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I've seen that with some EMDR practitioners and other practitioners who um, follow their own little uh, model that they've trained in. And the result of that is that not everyone is a tack. And that I've seen people who have been horribly traumatized by EMDR with practitioners uh, who basically are getting people into their traumas very quickly. They're not, since they don't, they're, a lot of them are using EMDR because they're they lack their own connection with their intuitive internal self they're they're not really following their intuition with the people who are coming to them for help and they're jumping into something that a more intuitive therapist would say i think we should go a lot slower and the result of that is uh some people just get completely overwhelmed and flooded by emdr and i've heard of people and talked to people who have gone psychotic as a result of going to an emdr practitioner they're going to an EMDR practitioner. They know they're traumatized. The next thing you know, they they get EMDR. They're completely overwhelmed and flooded by it, and it's it's just totally anxiety producing, and they lose it. I've seen people end up in the hospital. I've seen people just totally crack up. I've heard people you know have suicide attempts as the result of EMDR. Now those are not that's not the majority of what I've heard about EMDR, but I have heard those kind of situations, and that's that's just in general why I'm not into the into the things with the labels and the gimmicks because I think it, it's just better to um, have a therapist who's really connected with his or her internal self and follow follow the intuitive ability and make that really deep connection. Because I think that's really what, where the gift of therapy comes from, not from following some practice. Yeah, I mean, my, I guess, admittedly amateur preference is to, since, since it seems to be that the science is very clear that trauma in adulthood is usually, I mean, I would say almost always, but what do I know, right? It's usually something that that goes back to early childhood experiences, lack of attachment, uh, uh, trauma, uh, abandonment issues, and so on. And so to me, I think that the therapy that works the best, certainly for me, I mean, I was over two years, three hours a week, plus another 10 hours of journaling and all that kind of stuff. And this sort of slow, deep, steady work of focusing on early childhood stuff that to me is the stuff that works the best uh, and seems right. to have the strongest uh, correlation scientifically with long-term improvements. And so, but you know, uh, we are all enormously tempted by shortcuts, 
you know, it's just, uh, is there a pill I can take? Is there some something that can be flashed in my eyes? Is there an exercise regime that I can, you know, so that I can bypass all of the challenges of exploring the deep early brain? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this isn't, again, it isn't necessarily to take away from, uh, from the validity of what's going on with EMDR, because I think there is a validity to it, but it doesn't mean that, um, People make it out. I've, I mean, I've heard people make it out like EMDR is the the best thing for trauma, and it's like I don't think it is the best thing for trauma. I think it's just you know it's a fairly interesting and useful technique. There's a lot of overlap with EMDR and other things. And I remember the first time that someone was pointing EMDR to me. I thought, oh, I do a lot of that stuff already with people. I do it with myself, and so it wasn't like oh wow, this is a big mystery. It's just that I, I just know so many people love a bunch of of words and acronyms, you know, when there's a, they told us an evidence-based practice and and people get very comfortable with that. And to me, it's sort of like I roll my eyes when I hear about yet another evidence-based practice. It's like, come on. Right, right. Okay. So James, would you like to uh, bring up the first caller? Yeah. Um, The first caller today we have, we have today, excuse me, is Nate. Hey, how you doing? Hi. Hey, I just got a, I got two questions for you, and just real quick. Uh, the first being, I actually lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, for three years, and I, as I'm sure you are familiar with, uh, I, or maybe not. What time? What time of year did you go to Alaska? If you don't want me asking. I'm not sure. I was there uh, June, July, August, September. I left in mid October. Okay, uh, so you kind of maybe got to the end result of the. Uh, when the day changes, when you just start to see more, a lot more of darkness throughout the day, as opposed to having sunlight, and uh, the the vast majority of the time is uh, is night, as opposed. Yeah, to I, pur- I purposely went there the nice time of the year. Okay. Like, yeah. I just had no desire to be there in winter. Uh, yeah, I totally understand that because it gets really cold and there's no sunlight for the right. majority of the day. Uh, I was just wondering if you noticed any. Uh, and obviously, with, when it comes to the uh, Soteria House, there wasn't a whole. It was closely supervised. But he says you ex, uh, you had experienced uh, some of the Anchorage community, and for me, it seemed that while living in Fairbanks, there was a lot of abuse going on. Not only domestic, but also uh, alcohol abuse or some drug abuse. All it, uh, and it's particularly in my case, I did abuse alcohol when I was living there uh, to help combat one the boredom, especially in winter. When it was, you know, negative 40 outside, there's not a whole lot going on. Uh, you don't feel like doing a whole lot of things. And I just wonder if you had seen any of that as a, it's to the, uh, when you were living there and experienced that with any of the residents, like in the local area where you were at. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people up in Anchorage now, and it's like, you know, I have a lot of friends there. And I know people, uh, I don't think if I know anybody in Fairbanks, I must know a few people in Fairbanks, too. I never went there. I was pretty close. I was up in Denali a bit, but okay, yeah, um, yeah. Basically, this is the depressing time of year up there. It's pretty miserable, and I think a lot of people tend to sleep a lot more now, from what I hear. And you know, there, I, I was there at the pretty alive time of year when people are getting out and doing stuff, and it's a lot more fun. But um, I, I do think a lot. I mean, I I've heard statistics like Alaska has six times the average of the national average of uh, sexual abuse and in childhood of, you know, all sorts of horrible violence. I mean, but I think a lot of that's going on in native communities, but, but I also think that it's a pretty rough place, Alaska. I mean, 
part of the reason I think Soteria has been having a hell of a time is in uh, the middle of 2011, um, a former resident murdered another former resident in the backyard of Soteria. And so that's, I didn't get to that when I was talking about it, but it's like, there is a lot of violence in Alaska and it's, it's a pretty rough place. It was also an issue with people in the, I mean, my God, I mean, I, I still follow the uh, Alaskan news. I get it on my news feed every day and just reading goes on there. And it's like, for not a very large place, there's a huge amount of violence and it's pretty scary i mean it, i guess it's neighborhood by neighborhood but i also saw like a lot of the you know a lot of the smoke shops are you know loudly and proudly selling spice and so it's like you're getting people who are having psychotic episodes and half the time is it like oh are they having an actual psychotic episode because of trauma in their childhood or are they just acutely smoking spice and snorting bath salts and injecting bath salts into them. And this is part of the problem in the modern era of helping people with psychosis. It's not like so much it was 40 years ago when people who were having a psychotic episode were just troubled or maybe having a bad acid trip. Now there's like 50 different things that can be going on. But I do think, especially, I mean, I probably worse in Fairbanks than in Alaska, and especially once you get out more into the bush, it's like people are very isolated and, and very lonely. And I think, I mean, I heard tons of stories of, you know, also in northern Canada when I was up there in the Yukon, just like lots of suicides and not, um, I don't know. I mean, certainly outside of the cities, it's, I mean, even if you want to call Fairbanks a city, it's like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, pretty, uh, pretty rough living in a lot of ways. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's a pretty hard place, um, though in a way I loved it up there. I mean, I feel like I have a second home in Anchorage. And, but I don't know. I mean, Fairbanks again is what ten times smaller. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And I mean, I can totally, I concur, like with what you're saying. As far as the, there was a lot of, especially a native violence, not only upon each other, at least what I've witnessed firsthand, but also on other people that were living in the Fairbanks area. There yeah. was, especially, I mean, you throw alcohol or any sort of other drug in it if you're at various places in Fairbanks, because you know, as far as small as Fairbanks is. I think there's 10 or 12 uh, bars slash uh, clubs, if you want to call it that. I know there's a couple of uh, strip clubs there as well. And I just, from what I experienced while living there, it was just like insane. Like, I don't know. I was kind of sheltered because I didn't put myself in situations where, hey, I would end up getting in a fight or whatnot. But yeah, I, I would totally agree with you that I, it would, I would say it's a big deal. Even without the, uh, the impact of the weather on the residents, but just the fact that, you know, it's kind of like really isolated. Like once you get to a Fairbanks, <laughs> there's really nothing other of any size past Fairbanks whatsoever. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, my second question would be, uh, I'm looking at, after going through therapy myself if, for me and then be able to help my children as, as uh, they get older. So they don't repeat my same cycle or I haven't enabled them to repeat my same cycle of having to have therapy themselves when they get older. Right. Uh, and uh, looking and uh, looking into uh, possibly helping other people as I get more education and go forward myself. I spoke with a professional who gave me some rather information and with you rather, uh, uh, I wouldn't say crazy, but disturbing information. And when what you just said earlier kind of hit that home as well. Uh, she told me that the, the, a lot of therapists that you go see may have not even, they may have issues themselves. And what the, what the lady I talked to, she told me is like, they try and, because they haven't worked out these issues themselves, they'll focus those issues onto their patients. And that kind of disturbed me a little bit. 
But my question is, uh, what would you suggest as uh, far as far as a career in uh, psychology and helping people out? For obviously, you have a lot of experience. You've you've interviewed a lot of people. You've seen firsthand knowledge of putting that experience into practice. Uh, what would you see as the best way uh, to help other people, or other more specifically, families, parents, and children, in order for them to in order to help facilitate, really, like what Steph talks about, and the majority of us want a better world going in the future. Right. So. So I'm trying to be, uh, figure out specifically your question. So what would I suggest for you specifically if you want to go into a career in psychology? Was that it? Yes, definitely. And it, with a, more of a specialization into helping uh, parents and children. Hmm. Huh. Well, I guess it would depend on what your personal desires are and what your educational level is. I mean, I know what I did. I have a college degree in biology. I took intro to psych in college when I was 20. Hated it. I thought it was stupid. And... And so when I decided I wanted to be a therapist, I looked at my options and my options were like, oh, I can go get a PsyD or a P, you know, some sort of PhD in psychology, but I'd have to go back to basically do a year or two of college to take all the prerequisites. And I did not want to do that. So I just got a master's in social work. But I think the, the basic ways to go are to become some sort of professional therapist or counselor. And that's being a social worker, being a psychologist, um, being a licensed marriage and family therapist or going the psychiatrist route, though that pretty much negates being a therapist and you just end up pushing pills mostly. But um, then there's ways of doing it uh, non-professionally. I think an example of that would be, you know, being a coach or that, that is kind of professional too, or, you know, I mean, starting, you know, blogging about it or, but I think, uh, or, and I saw some people just like hire themselves, say, okay, I'm ready to go and just start getting clients and charging for it. And then just making sure when they advertise themselves, they don't advertise themselves in a way that, uh, overlaps with the mental health field. So doing something more like coaching, something like someone like Amy Childs does something like that. But in a way working as a mental health professional without really going to any sort of formal training. And I considered that when I originally became a therapist. I was 27 when I decided to become a therapist. And I thought I would have much preferred to just do it completely outside of the system. The problem is I didn't have any clue where to start or how to build a practice or how to get clients. And I really wasn't I wasn't that confident because I'd never really done it. So it's just a question of what what route to go. I mean, personally, I'm very glad that I did a route that was minimalist in terms of education. I did a, the, a social work degree, an, an MSW, which was two-year master's, which is not a particularly academic degree. And the best part about it was, for the very beginning, they stuck me in internships where I got to be a therapist immediately. And But specifically working with families and parents, I mean, children and parents, um, I mean, my personal belief is I don't think children really belong in therapy that much. I think the parents belong in therapy and the children, the children should get the benefits of having parents who are in a, in a growth and maturing process. But I think it's just something weird about children going and sitting with a therapist. It's just my personal feeling. But I know people who said that that when they were children, they got a lot of benefit from being in therapy, especially if their parents were really screwed up and their therapist was very loving to them, that they felt therapy could be a very safe place. But just on a sort of on a personal sort of primal level, I just never felt comfortable working with kids because I felt that it sends them the message at some level that there's something wrong with them, as opposed to the message that I much prefer to send children which I don't want to say to their faces because it can be very hurtful, but the real message is that you're fine. Your parents are fucked up. And, and it's like most parents 
get very threatened when they hear that, and they'll pull their kids out of therapy if you start even hinting that the parents are the problem. And so, it's I, I'm sort of I was caught in a conundrum. I'm when I because I people knew that I you know was good with kids, and I'd worked as a children's musician for several years before I became a therapist. So people right away started wanting to refer me kids, and and I was every time these parents would call me and try to refer me their kids, I'd say, well, I really don't want to work with children, but I will work with you to help you resolve your issues, you know, or help you work with whatever it is so you can be a better parent to your child. And maybe through you, your child will get better. And I hear a lot of parents, uh, they get very threatened by that. And I heard it so many times, but I don't have the problem. My kid has the problem. My kid Mm. has the problem. So that's part of why I think the, really the best way to help children is to help their parents. And that might sound a little disingenuous coming from me, considering the harsh stuff that I write about parents all on my website. But actually, I really don't think what I write is harsh on my website. I think it's just realistic. And I, I don't know. I personally think the best way to help kids as a therapist is to help their parents. And the really the best way is to change the whole system. And for me, it's just like, I, I don't know. I just think writing about my ideas and getting them out there to the best of my ability is the best way I can do it. But I'll be honest, I feel like I have not done it to the best of my ability. I've gotten way off track by getting so focused on all this psychosis stuff. And I'm in a way looking to get away from all this psychosis stuff and get back to what I really care about, which is directly talking about childhood trauma, which sooner or later I'm going to get back to. And I feel like that was a very long-winded way of not quite answering your question. (laughs) No, no, I totally find, and I would agree with you. As if, I mean, obviously, you you know Stefan, and you know the word he puts out, and is pretty much advocating the same thing. At least how I understand it is that children, when they're born, they're not born uh, corrupt or broken or anything like that. They are pure, innocent human beings who learn continuously from the moment uh, they're conceived, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would agree with you totally on the fact that, and that's kind of what I was getting at, and hopefully being able to put myself forward in a way to parents or parents-to-be, obviously that would be the most beneficial time to mm-hmm. get the parents before they had children, right? But obviously that's that's not the case as that as we have. Parents have kids now who you right. know abuse them or mistreat them. So I'm just looking forward of how I could best posture myself in order to help those parents so their kids uh, can grow up free and happy. Well, you said you're a parent. So my, my first vibe would be, be a great example. Yeah. Be a beacon of light for other parents and do, be as good as you can. Because you said something else that I wanted to jump on. You said earlier about it surprised you when some therapist said to you that um, a lot of therapists haven't done their own work or screwed up in their own ways and are acting out their stuff. I, I'm transforming your words a little bit. No, but acting yeah, stuff I, yeah. I think every therapist does that. Every parent does it. That's just inherent in the nature of power dynamics. And so I do it. as a, I did it as a therapist. It's like it's inevitable that some of my issues are going to be somehow thrust upon the people who are coming to me for help. And, that's, and, and I think it's inevitable if I became a parent now, no matter how healthy I am, the parts of me that are still screwed up are going to negatively influence my kids. Now, I would try to buffer that. I certainly as a therapist, I put a huge amount of effort into buffering that by being as aware of what my issues are and being open about it. But at the same time, it's like, I think that's the main limiting factor in life when we're in a helpful role or in a parenting role is the degree to which we're still screwed up. And so I, I, I don't know, I would never say that I'm out of the woods. I still got my issues. I still got a lot of Achilles heels and unresolved traumas and you know, unresolved needs. And I'm still like needy and screwed up in some ways. I think I'm way better than average. I still think I'm still growing, but it's like, I see it. And it's like, 
and I'm trying to be honest about it and humble about it. And that, that's part of the reason also I, I think mm, I don't want to have kids. I'd probably still, even in a very minor way, probably still screw them up. And I just couldn't abide, abide that in myself. I totally understand that. And I would say I would agree with you, just as just some guy that's talking to you, that by you purely admitting that, you're probably ahead of 90% of the people in the world. So anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate your answers, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thank you. Let's move on to the next caller. Thank you so much. All right. Next up today, we have Loretta. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Good. Um, I have a question about my brother, and um, I wanted to get some advice, and um, I wanted to possibly have him hear this call later on and, and, and see if he would maybe listen to someone other than myself, because I tend to be, um, you know, my family listens to me in some, with some regards to health, but they kind of think I'm an extremist because I pretty much uh, go against all drugs, and um, I'm not re really a big fan of the current allopathic system. So I thought I'd get some of your advice, if that's okay. Right. I'll, I'll give you my preamble first. It probably won't be advice. And, and also, it's like, uh, since it's about somebody else, I'll be pretty gentle, because uh, I don't know. I think of how I would have felt if my sister had called about me because my parent, my parents, when I was a teenager, I don't know how old you are or how old your brother is, but certainly we're both in our thirties. In your thirties, yeah. Well, my my family saw me as the problem, and they were always trying to get help from me, and it's like, ooh, I would have died to think that, you know, someone was asking for help about me, and 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 also, I really rebelled against my family throughout my twenties and into my thirties, and they were seeking help from me from professionals. Ooh, I still shudder. But anyway, that said, go for it, man. I'm curious. Well, um, my brother has been addicted to psychotropic drugs and alcohol probably for the past 18 years. Okay. And um, earlier this year, like the beginning of January, he um, was found next to a six-story building. Um, we're still not clear on the story, but uh, the police thought that he might have jumped, that he could have been pushed off. Um, and he's just really lucky to be alive. I mean, falling six stories, you know, pretty much most people die because of yeah, that. And um, he was in ICU for a few weeks and he, um, you know, had a lot of fractures, lost a lot of blood, had some internal organs that were damaged. And now he's um, in a normal hospital room. He's in traction still. They've done a lot of surgeries on him. But he's starting to become more lucid and he's definitely... Um, talking about what happened to him and in our conversations he says he definitely wants to stay away from the psychotropic drugs he wants to stay away from the alcohol and he's actually talking about how he wants to serve other people um you know he wants to kind of devote his life to something more positive and um the psychiatrist came in and i was there when the psychiatrist was talking to him and the psychiatrist seems to think that my brother would be good with something like Prozac after leaving the hospital. And I mentioned to the psychiatrist afterwards, you know, he was addicted to um, Xanax and Alitrol and a lot of psychotropic meds. You know, I don't really Alitol? think that that's... Alitrol? What's that? What's that? What was that name? Alitrol? I think, is it Alitrol or Alitol? It's something for like ADHD, I think. Yeah, Adderall. Adderall, thank you, sorry. Okay, I never heard of Alitrol. I was like, what is that? I had no idea. This just shows you how little I know about drugs and how much I despise them. I can't even say them right. Um, 
but he, yeah, I guess it was Adderall. Sorry about that. Sorry. And, um, and so I'm trying to really help my brother as far as helping his body kind of detoxify and getting him on like a healthier regimen. I'm myself, um, I eat a lot of fruit and some vegetables and I really try to live like a really pure lifestyle in that respect. But, um, my brother, not so much. And I believe that diet is kind of the first way to help the body heal. And I just feel like though he's kind of such a big issue cause he's done so many drugs and so much alcohol in his life. I'm afraid that, um, he might need something more than, than what I have to offer. And he might want to go back to something to help him. So I didn't know if you had any suggestions. Yeah. Drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So suggestions. Well, I, I would say, yeah, I'm not going to give advice for sure, but I'll, I'll give thoughts. Okay. Um, well, I think the first main thought is what does he want? And because I think a person's internal motivation is the primary thing that's going to kind of tell what they're going to do okay. and wh where they're going to go. So it's a question of what his real motivation is. I mean, it's sad, but I get emailed like pretty much every day because of the movies that I've made, because they're spreading all over. Um, I get emailed every day from families trying to help their children. Sometimes their children are teenagers or 20s, 30s, 40s, 40s. And it's like such situations kind of similar to yours. And it's, uh, so everyone's trying to help the person, but it, it really depends on what that person wants. So I think a lot of the, you know, the things that you're talking about, healthy diet and things like that can, yeah, they're great. It's just, it depends on how hard a person is willing to work um, emotionally um, and what, you know, what their tolerance level is for discomfort. I think a lot of people who run to drugs and alcohol and things like Xanax and Adderall, which, by the way, you're right, they are very addictive. Uh, they, you know, they, it's, it's often people who have a pretty low tolerance for, for the discomfort required for really doing the deep internal work and changing their lives. That doesn't mean that they can't do it, but I think also it's like, it, I don't know. I don't know what kind of information he's had presented to them. Stefan earlier mentioned that book, uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic. That's a, a winner, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's, there's, I mean, I don't know if, if he's taking Adderall or Xanax in the hospital. I mean, I imagine they're probably giving him some stuff if he's miserable and in traction and stuff like that, but He's but taking, the, like, pain medicine, I think. Right. That's it right now. Hmm. Yeah, which can be a problem in and of itself. People get hooked on that stuff. But Yeah. Then, but I wonder, um, I don't know. I think it's just, it also, I, I don't know where you live, but I, it depends on what's really available. I mean, I, I, I admit it. I want to puke when I hear some psychiatrist say that your brother's going to need Prozac. It's like, who the hell is anyone to say what somebody needs? He needs right. this drug. I mean, I get so sick of hearing that somebody needs this or they need that. It's like people are when they most people that I see when they end up on psychiatric drugs, they're either they just have no knowledge of what they're getting into or they're desperate or both. And right. and the, the main reason is, is because there's no good alternatives being offered to them. So the question is, it, it's half of it. What is your brother's motivation and what's his drive and his force to really change his life. And the other half is what's, 
what is realistically being offered to him to meet him halfway so that he has something that he can grab onto. Because, I mean, I don't know what happened to him. Like, sounds like you don't either. But just to end up, for anybody, ending up on lots of psychiatric drugs and ending up on alcohol and who knows what else and to the point of complete misery and destruction of one's own life, uh, usually a person feels pretty desperate to get into that situation and usually doesn't feel like there are any good alternatives being offered. So it's, it's realistically, it's pretty hard. And so I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is one of the big problems I have with psychiatry and the mental health system is really good alternatives are very, very, very few and far between. And, and yet there are, um, there, you know, there are some good things. I mean, Okay, if alcohol is a big problem for him, is he interested in you know going to a rehab? Is is he interested in twelve step programs? I mean, I'm actually not a big advocate of twelve step programs. I've been around AA a fair amount and know it pretty much through and through. At the same time, there's a lot that really bugs me about it, and I think a lot of it's just wrong. But on the other hand, I know for a lot of people, it's been a step in their life that that has been in a good direction. So yeah, he um he's done a lot of rehab, and I know my parents have spent a ton of money on him as far as sending him to different rehab centers across the country. You're, um, you're American. What's that? You're American. Yes, yes. And I I don't know the specific names, but he went to one in Chicago, one in Florida, um, I think maybe one in Arizona. I'm not quite sure. And um, he he'll come back. He'll be there for 30 days, and he'll come back, and that night he'll drink. Right. And it's gotten to the point where my dad just kind of wanted to disown him and right. have nothing to do with him anymore. And now my brother is pretty much poor. He relies on my parents, and he's pretty much bankrupt my parents. They haven't right. filed bankruptcy or anything, but they basically cashed in all of their retirement money to pay for all of his rehab. Not and, and now it's kind of like his rehab is basically going to be him living with my parents. Right. And well, visiting. Can, I, can I challenge you for a minute? Sure, sure. I, I'm going to go with what you said, that he bankrupt your parents. I would say your parents had choice in that. I and agree. They, they chose I, to do that. And this is this is their decision. I mean, I, I've got a lot of people I love who, and, and I don't know a single one of them that can bankrupt me. I would have to spend all my money. So I would say that they bankrupt themselves. And to, and, and that's, so it sounds like, and this is this is a common situation with people who have a lot of conflicts and issues that they're going going through, and that parents will jump in and rescue them repeatedly. So, so this this question, it could, I mean, and not to the betterment of their child. So right. they can feel like, oh, we this child has bankrupted us. Poor me, poor me, poor me, poor us. Not saying your parents are doing that, but I do see that sometimes, and it's like it sends a very bad message to the child because an adult child, I mean, you said your brother's an adult. It's like, I, I don't know. As an adult, it's, it doesn't make me feel good about myself when other people are sending me the message that I need to be rescued. And so I don't know. Sometimes it's like tough love can go a long way. Not saying that that'll solve the problem because sometimes it has very ugly results, but but it's definitely something worth considering and thinking about. Just just because the way you said it, I imagine they probably do think that he's bankrupted them, or maybe not. And I don't really know. Actually, I shouldn't say that. But so he's going to go back and live with them. That sounds like a pretty hopeless situation to me. They've already spent all their money on him. They've gone bankrupt. Yeah. And now, well, he's he's, he's going to be in a wheelchair for a while, and he really he has nothing. I mean, 
he he his license has been taken away from him because of um, alcohol related issues and you know he back before he was living with my parents off and on and he would do something he'd get into a fight and they'd kick him out and this repeated for years and years um, and now that he's going back and he seems to me like he wants to stay off the drugs and alcohol for good now you know we're hoping that you know falling off six stories was a wake-up call and that was rock bottom but mm-hmm. i just don't know i mean i i've been listening to fdr for a while now well not for a while but since early summer and you know i know steph uses a lot of um you know he stresses curiosity and i really trying to be curious with my brother but i don't know if there's anything i can do other than trying to help him eat healthier and be curious with him. But um, I agree with you. I would never allow him to bankrupt me, you know, and I, I have my my limitations as to f- how far I'll go to help him. And I am trying to see if he really wants the help. And right now he does seem to be like he wants the help. Right. Well, I don't know. It's just, it just I mean, I'm, I'm being blunt with you, but the thought that goes through my head is uh, you wanted him on this call. Maybe your parents need to be on this call. Do, do you know what I <laughs> Yeah, and, and because it it just sounds to me like a lot of what's going on somehow they're they're very involved with it probably at a lot of levels and so the question is are they doing anything so differently because many of your questions have come back to you know or, or your comments have been about he's changed he's hit rock bottom he's doing something differently but have they and so yeah. they haven't they sound like they're the primary support system for him or maybe one of the primary ones and so. Um, if they haven't changed and they haven't, if they haven't hit rock bottom, then his environment really hasn't changed. And so that's the the other half of like, what are his alternatives? And if his basic support system hasn't changed, then it doesn't sound very helpful to me. I agree. Well, I tried to bring up um, this situation. Yeah. Sorry. Just to interrupt for a sec. There's a, uh, the, the sort of grim faced empiricism, I think that philosophy demands is I think of, of great utility in these kinds of situations. I mean, the first thing that I would suggest the family look at is to recognize that everything that the family did prior to him falling six stories resulted to some degree or another in him falling six stories, which was the exact opposite of what everybody wanted, right? So so this is the grim empiricism that needs, this is nothing to do with psychology. This is just, I think, just basic philosophy, which is that Everything that was done prior to his disaster contributed or resulted in or did not prevent that disaster, which means everything must be open to question. Everything must be open to question. Everything that wasn't done needs to be examined as to its potential utility. Everything that was done needs to be examined extremely critically because it produced or at least did not prevent the opposite of what everyone wanted. Does that Makes sense, and and if the family's open to that, because what you're talking about is all external stuff, right? It, 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 he went to therapy. Uh, he was prescribed these drugs. He made these choices. He didn't do this. He did that. And uh, I don't think that we can look at these kinds of dysfunctions outside of looking at the family system. But it seems that there's a lot of externalization, and part of giving uh, someone money, and I, you know, I, I don't know, of course, the motives of your parents, but part of giving money is a way of externalizing. The problem. The problem is that you don't have money. The problem is that you're on the wrong meds. The problem is that you're taking drugs. Whereas I would argue that these are symptoms 
And the symptom, symptomology seems to be fairly clear. And this is coming straight out of um, a book I've recommended a number of times from a guy who's been on the show, which is Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, where he goes uh, directly into early childhood trauma and its causal effect on triggering addiction and self-destructive behavior in numbers of people. So what I haven't heard a lot of is, you know, the family needs to sort of sit down and figure out what happened in early childhood and so on and uh, work on, on changing that because it's not an issue, I, I don't think. I mean, this is just, again, amateur opinion hour as usual. But it is not an issue of drugs. It's not an issue of alcohol. It's not an issue of money. Uh, it is, I would imagine, uh, an issue of, uh, you know, brain problems that come out of early childhood deprivation, abandonment, or abuse, or something like that. And if you keep playing whack-a-mole with the symptoms, it doesn't seem that that's going to help very much. So that's the first thing I would say. The second is that you mentioned something that made my spider sense tingle a bit, which is that he sort of came out of his fall saying he now really wants to help people. Um, (laughs) Helping people it's not the best thing to do after you've plunged six stories uh, after you know decades of, of abuse and, and uh, of, of drugs and other things. Helping people is an interesting way of avoiding intimacy. Uh, that's something that uh, – because when you're helping people, you are putting yourself in an authority position, whether you like it or not, and you are um, not engaging at a level of egalitarianism. And so, I mean, obviously, I think helping people is a great thing, but uh, it's it's very tempting for people who have intimacy issues to dedicate themselves to helping others. Uh, but I'm not sure that that is going to do a lot to deal with the true nutrition of life, which I think is egalitarian, intimate love relationships. So um, I would not necessarily encourage him to sort of pick himself, his shattered body up and start throwing himself into helping others, because I don't think that will deal with any intimacy issues he may have. Yeah, I've, I've I've suggested that to him because he's mentioned things like how he wants to go back to school and you know just in the hours that we've spent in the hospital together, he's talked about a lot of different things he wants to do with his life. Um, but it seems to me like I want to tell him maybe you should just take time to, you know, allow your body to realize what you've gone through and um, you know maybe hang out with the dog for a while in nature and um, and learn and how grief. to. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, I mean, agree. sorry, even if there's no childhood issues, right? Maybe if he just got hit by the random god lightning of addiction. Uh, if there are no childhood issues, I mean, I tell you, if I lose my keys for 10 minutes, I get frustrated. And then I feel like, oh, man, that was 10 minutes. I Whatever, right? And I mean, if it were 10 years that I had lost, I mean, the amount of grieving that, that will need to go on uh, with regards to the last years and all of the harm that he may have done to himself, obviously, and to others, potentially, during that time, you know, there's a lot of grieving to be done, I would argue, before moving on with his life. You can't just sort of pick yourself up from 10 or 15 or 20 years of addictive self-destructive behavior and say, well, (laughs) the past is in the past. I'm moving on. I think that there is grieving uh, because, of course, uh, at least according to the general wisdom of, of psychologists that I know of, it seems that emotional development tends to be arrested uh, during a time when significant addiction begins. Right, because significant addiction is a way of avoiding pain, and uh, the ability to process pain uh, is one of the hallmarks of maturity. So, uh, having avoided emotional development through addiction for many, many years, there's a lot of 
uh, regrowth or first growth really that needs to occur with all the additional burdens of many years of addiction. So there's a lot to process, uh, I would argue, before, you know, years, years of stuff to process before uh, thinking about helping others. But again, it's a very tempting thing to think because it's another way of avoiding processing the original uh, trauma and also the additional trauma of the last years. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm sensing, and I, I really appreciate your your input on that because um, it seems like him wanting to move forward with his life is ignoring a lot of what he hasn't processed yet, and I'm just hoping um, without pushing too much, I can question him in the right way to get him to think about what has happened to him, really think about it. Well, and if he's setting himself up for the kind of disappointment that's going to reignite addictive behavior, right? I'm going to go and help people. I'm going to leave the past in the past. And then, you know, you stumble and fall. Uh, I would argue that he's telling you a lot about the original problems uh, that probably go back to early childhood. He's telling you a lot about those because if this is an attempt to an, an unconscious recreation of the early trauma, which would be this kind of setup followed by this kind of disappointment, the inevitable disappointment, uh, that probably tells you a lot about what's going on deep down in the bowels of infancy and so on but again that would be something i would imagine would be <laughs> productively explored with a great therapist yeah that's something we need to find i think <laughs> well i'm going to jump in for one more sec here okay yeah sure yeah i just heard you say one other thing that just made me a little red flag went up that you you said um loretta that you uh, wanted to get him to realize something go in and talk to him and get him to realize or understand something and I, I can't remember your exact words but it's like I think it's pretty risky to uh, try to try to wake somebody up if he's your brother I mean I'd say uh, it's just it's just my thought that it's like I don't know I, I think if he's living with your parents it's like this is a family system that didn't sound like it, it sounded like it got stuck somewhere along the way you know he's still coming back to live with his parents like a child. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I whatever, I guess bottom line is, I, I don't, I, obviously I don't know you or your personal situation, but um, it's just, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily would be so fruitful to try and wake him up. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of work, but if he doesn't do it, it's like, it's on him. And I agree. It's totally on him. And um, I think the living with my parents, because, um, you know, the state pretty much paid for his entire medical expense um, mm -hmm. because he has absolutely no money. And um, they're not really going to do too much with rehab. So he's going to stay with my mom and dad until he can walk and he's out of, of a wheelchair. Um, I think they might provide limited help with him learning to walk again. But um, after that, I, I did mention to my mom and dad, you know, he needs to find a place to live on his own and you know, take care of himself. He's got to want to do this more than anybody else in his life. Yeah. It's I pretty, yeah. <laughs> I guess the thought that goes through my head is, mm, it's like, I, I don't, this doesn't sound like moving back in with your parents. I mean, to me, it's like, I would question that at all because once he gets in there, it's hard to get out and yeah. he's going to transition into a different place. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming he probably has Medicaid or something like that, but yeah, I think so. In whatever state you're in, or Medicare if he's old enough, but um, or he's worked enough, but I don't know. Just, I mean, yeah. I, I also just have a personal visceral reaction when I hear about moving back in with parents. It's like, oof, my 30s. That sounds like 
you know, that well, he's been like, living with them off and on his whole life. I mean, he, I think he, maybe a couple of times he's had his own apartment yeah. and those were short lived because is, he, <laughs> but sorry, but this is what I was saying was that everything that has been done before contributed to him plunging six stories. Right. Yeah, so if he was yeah. living with your parents before, that had something to do with, or at least did not prevent him plunging six stories. And this is why, as a family system, it's important to sit down, list everything. I mean, this is just basic empiricism. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to say basic like it's obvious. It's just this is not usually the way we're taught to think. But you list down everything. What did the family do to try and solve this problem? Well, we gave him money. Well, he lived with us here. Well, we put him into rehab. Well, we did this. None of that worked. So at the very least, <laughs> let's not do any of those things again. Good point. And so, uh, yeah. you know, at, or at least let's talk about not, not doing those things again. I don't know what any, anyone should or shouldn't do. But there is this kind of weird, we just kind of go back onto these train tracks all the time. There's this gravity well of these train tracks, you know. Like, oh, well, you know, this is the, and it is the easiest thing to do is to have them go live with your parents. Of course it is, right? But that has been on the list of things that failed to prevent or contributed to him plunging six stories. So the, the, the sort of objective outside the biosphere rational approach is to say everything which we did before must be questioned. And so if giving him money, giving him resources, uh, getting him rehab, having him live with your parents, it's like, well, we did all that for years and years and years, and it did not solve the problem. So let's talk about not doing that. At least that would be my suggestion. I agree. I think yeah, that's wonderful. Go ahead. The, the issue that I get into all the time when I talk with, with parents in these kind of situations is – and, and it's, it's right along the lines with what you're saying, Stefan, about if that's what we've tried before and it didn't work, why are we going to try it again? Then the problem is what are the other realistic alternatives that are available? And sometimes they're horrible. And that's why everybody gets scared and goes toward the easier one. But, I mean, for all I know, they'd, they'd put him in some nursing home with a bunch of old people and stick him in a room and he'd never get any rehab and he'd be permanently crippled forever. You know, that's, that's one possibility. I don't, I don't really know what realistic alternatives are available. But I also know that once something like, oh, his parents will take him back and keep him, then all the social workers are let off the hook. No one has to really find a good place for him, and it just becomes the easy answer, and that the alternatives often dry up. So, and it's just like, it's a pretty rough situation. So I, I don't know. I think it's like now is the time, as far as I'd see, to really fight for the alternatives. And because I don't think they're going to get better necessarily. They probably are going to shrink as time goes on. But because the other thing is they're not going to put them out on the street. It's just a question of where, where would he go? So, yeah. But anyways, so I'm basically agreeing with Stefan. I was just translating it into a bit of practicality because often it's like parents take, take their kids in when they realize the alternatives all absolutely suck. And well, yeah. And we haven't even discussed alternatives any, you know, in depth. So that's definitely, I think, a place to start when I have a chat with my mom and dad about this. Um, and, you and know, I, I mention to them that we don't want to repeat that, what, what has led to him jumping off a, or falling off a six-story building. And I just really wanted to express my sympathies. God, I mean, what an unbelievably horrible situation to have to be dealing with. I mean, there's no good answer. I mean, there, there's no good answer. I mean, in, in many ways, it's like, okay, let's juggle these flaming balls called the lesser of many evils. And so I, I really wanted yeah. to uh, express yeah. incredible sympathies for, I mean, the effect that this has had, obviously, on, on your life yeah. for many, many years. I mean, siblings have a very, very powerful impact on our, uh, on our lives. I mean, in many ways, they're more so than parents because the parental relationship ideally changes over time. But the sibling relationship, it's someone who continues through your life. 
uh, and certainly yeah. after your parents die, they're, they're the people who knew you when you were children. And they're the only people who follow you through, ideally, through your whole life and go through the same uh, major life events and all the wonderful little minor life events that, that go up to making who we are. And so uh, given that you haven't had that companion and that you are having to deal with this or you're choosing to deal with this, um, I, I just – I'm so sorry. I mean what an unbelievably difficult, horrible, challenging, resource-draining, mind-filling in, in not a positive way series of events to have to deal with. I'm, I'm just – I'm incredibly sorry that this is even on your, your menu of to-dos because it tends to – these kinds of things do tend to expand and eclipse a whole lot of other things that could – well, we obviously would be much more pleasant – and positive to deal with. So I'm, I'm so sorry for, for what it is you're going through. That's just wretched. And uh, it is not going to be any uh, any easy solutions, I'm sure, as you know. Yes. Um, thank you so much. And um, mm. I always appreciate the uh, the heartfelt, um, you know, expressions you reach out when you reach out to people like me. And, and I just really feel love and I, I can't even talk, right? But thank you so much for all of your help. Uh, if, you, and if you get a chance, uh, feel free to drop me a line. Let me know how it goes. Um, I'm always curious to to know what happens. And uh, be, best of luck. Uh, I'm, right. I'm, 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 I'm sad to say you'll need it. So uh, I hope it works out. Well, thank you so much. Uh, do we have other callers or should we dip into the chat? Uh, dip into the pool of text. All right. Well, Daniel, I feel that uh, any show wherein you and I do not talk about spanking the bishop is is just a show that does not have its completeness. So we've had some questions about uh, where you stand, um, assuming that standing spanking, is the position. Spanking the bishop? On is, that, is that related? Ah. Okay, so the, so, the, so the monkey has devolved now into a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, I think that the bishop, because of the hat, is more related to the uh, uncircumcised uh, penis. But um, uh, so that's, uh, I think, uh, probably more of a Britishism than <laughs> a yeah, British phrase, I would imagine. I've never heard of spanking the bishop. I'm sorry? Oh, I never heard of spanking the bishop. So, was it, so anyway, so masturbation. So was there a question? Yes, uh, because I think somebody had read uh, some material on your site about your thoughts and about masturbation in the past and just wondered where where you stood these days. Oh, where do I stand on masturbation? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, hmm, probably no different from what I wrote on my website, but I don't know. I haven't, I haven't even gone back and read. You know, it's, it's really funny. I haven't gone back and read my website in a few years, so I don't even remember half of what I wrote. Um, I'll have to go back and read it again. No, if, if I remember rightly, it's been some time since I read this as well, but uh, you viewed masturbation as problematic in that it's a little dehumanizing and, uh, and um, it can be a way of getting sexual need met without intimacy and, and that there can be some significantly negative effects of it that are generally under-discussed. Yeah, I mean, that, maybe that makes it sound a little more dangerous, but I think, um, hmm, I mean, I think it's, it's basically... See, it's complicated. Well, here's a thought that I had. I think that most masturbation involves fantasy. And, I mean, I think it's possible to masturbate without having fantasy, just to literally just, like, get sexual release, have an orgasm. But I think it's the fantasy more in the masturbation that I think is the dangerous part, not the sexual release. I don't think that's bad or good or anything. That's just That just is what it is. And that actually, there's probably some evidence that that could be fairly healthy in some ways to just let that stuff out. 
and probably just anxiety release and all that stuff can, let's say it'd be healthy. But I think it's the fantasy part that that's the, um, that's the part that's troubling. And I don't know. I, I actually don't really feel like I have a huge amount of thoughts about it right now. I've been putting a lot of thought into it. Uh, maybe if there was a specific question, I don't, I don't know. Well, we'll wait and see if, uh, if somebody comes back with more detail. Now, something that, you know, Otherwise, I'd just, some, feel uh, like I'd just be jerking off on, uh, on, uh, <laughs> by talking yeah, about I mean, it. <laughs> the fantasy element may not be too bad in that you really don't want to be doing it while you're actually staring at someone. Uh, <laughs> could be, you know, particularly on the bus, kind of unsettling. So, uh, so uh, another question, you know, people are surprised sometimes uh, because uh, every now and then somebody calls in with a dream. And I have, you know, I'm sure people know, come from a very artistic background. Uh, I was uh, in, in theater school. I wrote novels and, and plays. I, I acted, uh, did Shakespearean leads and, and so on. So I have worked a lot with the <laughs> juicy man meat of deep brain creativity throughout my life. And so, and of course, I did a lot of work on dreams when I was going through my, well, never-ending continues uh, phase of self-knowledge. So when people call in and ask about dreams, it fires up my metaphor center and we we talk about those and i i find dreams to be um, i guess the freudian phrase is the royal road to the unconscious uh, i think that they are very powerful and i think that there is an element very deep within our brain that escapes culture and i don't mean jazz i mean like the things that we are told about the world that aren't true uh, you know the, the, the things that we're told about the world that aren't true uh, there's two words that tend to try and pretty up the lies. One is called culture and the other is called faith. And there's a part of our brain deep down that remains immune to those things, which is why very few people uh, jump off buildings with apologies to the previous caller for the analogy, but they don't jump off buildings and wait for the hand of God to, to hold them up. Uh, you know, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition is what people generally tend to to work with. And so I think there's a part of the brain that escapes programming. And I think that part of the brain uh, also tends to uh, work in, in dreams and uh, tries to wake us up. Uh, dreams try to wake us up from cultural, uh, religious uh, indoctrinations, nationalism, all the nonsense that passes for deep thought in the modern world. And so I really, I think dreams are fantastic and there's a lot that we can learn from them. But people, you know, it kind of blows their mind, you know, because we go from <laughs> talking about Austrian economics to what is the panther doing in my bed. Uh, but uh, what are your thoughts about uh, dreams and their value, Daniel. Did you use them at all in your therapy? Do you find them to be uh, of uh, to to look at them and to try and examine their content to be a value? Yeah, I I write about that or have written about it a fair amount. I mean, I spent probably oh I don't know seven or eight years every night writing down my dreams. I had my computer set on hibernate, kept it right next to my bed, and I would just wake up often two or three times in the night and write down my dreams. I would write them down. I would analyze them immediately upon having them. And I got kind of trained in doing that. And then I would wake up in the morning and then do a really in-depth analysis the next morning. And what was amazing, what I found, is uh, how I'd wake up in the morning and wouldn't even really remember that I'd written down my dreams. And there would be 2,000 words of dreams and analysis written down that I was basically in a mostly a sleep state when I wrote it down. And then I would just be reading these dreams and it would, it would bring back memories that I, I totally forgot that I'd even had the dream. And I found a great value in it. I spent every day a lot of hours doing dream analysis. And I felt it really 
got me in touch with knowing myself and being profoundly honest with myself about what my deeper issues were. And yeah, dreams are all just a big metaphor for what's going on under there. And sometimes the metaphor is pretty obvious and sometimes it's a little less obvious. But And I also think dreams can mean a lot of different things. They can be metaphors for a lot of different things going on. Uh, but I found them incredibly helpful. I grew a lot as a result of studying my dreams and analyzing them and making sense of them. And as a therapist, yeah, I, I certainly had people who brought in their dreams and I worked with them on their dreams. But I think that it's all context specific. So I, I feel like before I would get into really analyzing somebody's dreams, I would want to really feel confident that I knew that person and knew their history pretty well because the dreams are happening on so many levels. For instance, that that last woman who just called in, Loretta, um, I was hesitant to give, I probably said more than I wanted. And I was hesitant to say too much because I really don't know her situation. I don't know her family's situation. I don't know her brother's situation. So I was trying to speak in generalities to a degree because it's like there really can be so many contingencies with you know human history and family systems and culture but it's the same way with dreams for me is that I'm not too quick to go and jump into analyzing anybody's dreams until I feel confident that I know them very well and yeah sometimes people can tell me just a little bit about them and tell me a dream but there's just so many things that are going on so even for myself it's like I, I mean, I literally, I must have analyzed 10,000 of my own dreams more. I really don't know. I never counted. But I have tens of thousands of pages of dream analysis that I've done of myself. And I still feel like I don't always know what the heck is going on in my dreams. And sometimes I can go back to a dream that I had five years ago and look at it and, and, and see the analysis. And it's a very interesting analysis. And I'll say, well, maybe it really was totally off and it meant this. But, but I do feel, yes, dreams are, as you, you, you put it, that Freud quote, the royal road to the unconscious. And so it's a great way to get to know oneself. Though I do know people who don't remember their dreams, and I don't think that that's, that should stop them from being able to get to know themselves. It's just one tool. Because I think anything in anyone's life, anyone's relationships, anyone's thoughts, anyone's fantasies, uh, what a person is doing, what their fears are, all these things are also part of the royal road to the unconscious and can tell what's going on. The basic thing is following somebody's feelings. Whatever a person's feelings are really tell what's going on on the inside, and that's the that's the strand to follow. So I think a big part of following dreams is not just the intellectual metaphors that are coming up, but the feelings that are going on within them. Oh, good. Uh, somebody just posted Probably in the chat window that, that they've... Anyways, you probably talked about all this anyways, because I don't think I said anything that was particularly revolutionary there. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, don't worry, but this is a show where we don't tell people what to do, because, of course, there, <laughs> there are those incredible limitations of uh, the internet medium. And the... Somebody just wrote, to, I've introduced my aunt and uncle to Free Domain Radio. They're here listening with me. Hello, auntie. Hello, Hello uncle. I hope that you are enjoying you know, I never know what to call it. The conversation, it, it, the show, you know, I just don't want to confuse with the Rockettes or anything like that. But um, uh, somebody has asked suggestions on how to begin a conversation with your family about childhood experiences without them shutting down. Ah, yes. The uh, plucking the jewel from the temple in Indiana Jones conversation. Uh, this person says, I've tried to broach the topic many times, but the conversation tends to always shy Stay, sorry, stay in the abstract. I don't want to force the issue because knowing my family, this will just end the conversation. How do I get them to open up personally about topics that they resist with every fiber? 
Okay. I know that's something that people in this field never get asked. So I thought for the very first time. Now, of course, it's it's a common question because it is, of course, such an important question that so many people are wrestling with. Right. What are your thoughts on? Hmm. It's a great question. I think. Uh, well, it's funny. I, I'm soon going to be start working on a book. I wrote a draft of a book last year, and I have to really get get it ready for publication. But it's basically on divorce people divorcing their parents. So it's in a way the exact opposite of the this question, but. I think it is, it's a wonderful thing to try to get information out of one's parents because they know all sorts of stuff. It's a question of how much they're really going to tell. So I think part of it goes against a lot of the things that I feel about my parents right now, which is I don't want anything to do with them. So I think a lot of it is building a relationship with them. It's like, how, do, how does one get information out of anyone? It's win their trust and get close to them. Be calm about it. Be gentle. Respect their terrors. Respect their denial. Um, there's, I, I do think a lot of it really is when people trust, this is beyond just parent-child relationships, but when people trust, they'll talk. When people feel safe, they'll talk. When they feel comfortable, they'll talk. I think using uh, any sort of interactive skills that help uh, people feel comfortable um, make people more likely to talk. Being really empathic, being understanding. There's ways to bridge, like, please tell me about the horrible things that happened to me in my childhood might be a little um, bit of a, a leap for some people at first. It is. People don't want to talk about it. So I think that there's, there's uh, halfway topics that can be safer. Talking about um, other personal kind of things, edging closer to it. And I think also it's like for anybody, talking about this stuff is like building a muscle. And so building a relationship is like you know, strengthening a muscle also. So if, you know, approaching it, I think also people want to get information quickly and it doesn't mean that their parents necessarily have that ability right now. It might take a while. It might, it might, this might be an investment of several years to get closer to it. Um, I think in general, pushing them doesn't work. Attacking them doesn't work. Threatening them doesn't work. Ultimatums don't work. Um, Oh, I, I'll be blunt. I mean, I've heard stories of people saying, yeah, I, I couldn't get anything out of my dad except when he gets drunk and then he'll talk. I've heard people, so they've um, gone to the bar with their dad and waited until he gets drunk and then ask questions and then he'll talk and sleep it off. Um, I know sometimes people's parents won't talk until one of the parents dies and the other one is still left alive. And so, you know, sometimes people parents are protecting each other. Sometimes parents have to wait until their own parents die before they feel comfortable to say anything about their past. So a lot of times it's just patience. Um, but I, I know, gosh, I, I heard one story about a, a woman who tried to kill herself. She was an older woman in her 70s, and she called her son into the hospital. He went to visit her, and while they were in, in there, she admitted that the reason she tried to kill herself was all sorts of stuff she'd never told him about his childhood. And so literally she was extremely ill and had almost died and then was tried to kill herself to avoid the conversation and then finally realized she just needed to have it to get it off her chest. And, but it's like, I, I mean, at one level, I'm not, at all sympathetic for parents. If I'm taking the side of the child, I really just don't care about the parents because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on the child's side and I want the child to do whatever they need to get the best out of life and to grow. But also, 
I, I'm also very able to recognize easily that parents are just traumatized children themselves. And so it's like dealing with a traumatized child. How do you deal with a traumatized child to build a relationship? And so that's how I think if you really want information from your parents, treat your parent like a traumatized child. And then they'll – so that's, that's it. It might sound like contradictory to a lot of what I say, but it's just very practical, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would say that a parent is like a traumatized child, with the exception that the traumatized child usually hasn't abused other children, and so there's the well, additional exactly. weight of yeah, of guilt exactly. over and above uh, the the hurt, well, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, of course. That's why it sounds like it contradicts my point of view. But this is why it's just st- specifically looking at them that way as a means to an end. But in the in the bigger picture, whose side am I on? I'm on the child's side, and if they want to break up with their parents, fine. I couldn't care less about the parents because once. Once people traumatize a child that they've created, they're they're culpable. It's done. And but I'm only answering the talking about parents as a traumatized child and to treat them that way as a specific means to an end for someone who asked the question of wanting to get information out of their parents about talking about the past, talking about their childhood, talking about these things. And that can sometimes really help. I'll say specifically, I got a huge amount of information out of my mom. She she went, got sober. She was an alcoholic and a drug addict. She got sober when I was 22 and got into AA. And her first year or so being in AA, she was wildly open and maybe even two years. And she told me a ton of stuff in those first couple of years because she was very vulnerable and she was she was really open. And I... I learned a huge amount. I learned about the affairs she'd had. I learned about the affairs my dad had had. I learned about her being abused as a child and this weird sexual stuff that happened with her parents. I learned about her horrible history of neglect. I heard about her terrible drug abuse history. I mean, she admitted to me that she had hepatitis C from shooting drugs before I was born. I had to go get tested for hepatitis C. I could have killed her. I mean, I, I never knew, knew any of this. And I was in my 20s. I was 23, 24 years old when she was telling me this stuff. But it was like, I and I actually lived with her for part of that time. And it was very, very helpful. And during that time, I really wasn't angry at her almost at all. Later, right. when I moved out, I was really mad because I put all the pieces together in my head and realized what an absolutely horrible person she was for having done what she did to me. But during the time when I was in information gathering and getting a ton from her about my history that was vital, it was like I was totally like bonded with her. And I think that that was very valuable as a means to an end. I wasn't thinking about it consciously then. At that point, I just wasn't particularly mad at her. I saw her as an ally. But later when I did the math on a deeper emotional level, I was like, this fucking woman is an enemy. She really, really destroyed me in a lot of ways. But I was very glad for that time of getting that information because later it was very useful to me. I, I didn't know all of that, Daniel. And I mean, I knew some of it, but again, just wanted to, wow, that's um, that is a wretched mess to deal with. And I'm sorry that I'm sorry that the evil stalk of happenstance happened to drop your infancy on the lap of such people. I'm really, uh, Oh, a, oh listen, it gets a lot worse than that stuff. And that was, that was the, that was uh, not even the thumbnail sketch. I mean, like they really did horrible things to me and, and they like, you know, that's they they were people who basically as i say and by the way i I know parents that are a heck of a lot worse but they did a lot of horrible stuff and it's like i came by whatever abuse i got by them it's like when i talk about being traumatized i got it and it was like they were bad (laughs) they did a lot of bad stuff there are other things that 
you know, in sort of the, uh, I feel like we're, we're giving um, spy lessons or something, you know, how to get information out of people to yeah, whom the information is. is costly. Yeah. And so the one yeah, thing you can do Why is... Children should be able sorry, to do that. I think it's totally fair. I think yeah, it's fair no, for children to be able to strategize to get what they want from their parents later. Because, I mean, I think their parents should just give it willingly. But if they don't, get it. Get it. Figure out how to get it out of them. I think it's, I mean, within reasonable, respectful means, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we definitely do not advocate waterboarding here. But um, th- so nope. one thing that that I found helpful is you can uh, ask parents about their childhoods with no overt agenda of of finding out about your own childhood. Uh, if you get a portrait of your parents' childhood, uh, mm-hmm. what it's like, it's like, I mean, w- when you look at your own childhood without looking at your parents' childhood, it's like looking at a painting of a forest with no background. It's just some bare trees and, and white Say that again? space. Sorry, I'm, I, I was thinking a different thought. Can you repeat what you just said? Yeah. If you get, if you try to get information about your own childhood without trying to get information about your, uh, your parents' childhoods, it's like looking at a, a painting or a picture of a forest without any background at all. Like it's just a bunch of trees and white space between them. There's no context. There's no depth. And it's not a full picture. And in fact, it can be sort of a misleading picture. So I would ask my mother about her childhood um, it, it, without, you know, overtly saying, and, and, and its effect on my childhood or whatever, right? So hearing about her experiences during the Second World War in Germany, uh, the bombings and, and the death of her own mother uh, in the firebombing of Dresden and uh, the time when she Damn. had to cozy up to um, uh, a, uh, a Russian tank commander in order to get him to not shoot up the town with his tank. Uh, I mean, the, the, the things that she had to do, I mean, just a wretched, horrendous environments that, that I, you know, can't, can't imagine really very well. But you can get a lot of information about what happened to your parents just by asking them without it being a fact-finding mission to find out about your own childhood. So that's yes, one I, thing that you can... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. And, and the I, other thing... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go, go. I, have an, I have an idea. I don't want to lose it, but go on, go on. No, no, I've got my second thought in, in the back burner, so go ahead. Okay, because there was something I wanted to um, I wanted to kind of disagree with what you're saying about that analogy of um, if you don't get the history of your parents, then basically the picture is going to be very limited. There's not going to be a context for it, and it might even be uh, a distorted picture. That I actually think that Deep down in our unconscious, we know the entire history of our own childhood. We know it all. We know it all completely true and accurate. It's just a question of resolving our traumas enough to be able to see it clearly. And I think that we don't really what we don't need to hear from our parents what the heck happened to us. We know it. We just have to be able to access it. And it's getting through all that terrifying stuff to be able to find it. That's part one. Part two is that if we want to find out what all those trees are like in the background of that picture, if we really want to know the context of our parents' childhood and what really they went through, all we have to do is look at what they did to us. And that'll tell us really basically at basic all we really need to know about what happened to them. And it'll be just as accurate because what they did to us is what happened to them and what they were never able to resolve. So I think from that angle, we really don't need to hear anything from our parents. We don't need to get their history. On the other hand, it's incredibly valuable to hear it. For It has been for me. 
And I, I put a huge amount of effort into getting both of my parents' histories, getting the histories of my uncles and aunts, of getting my, I mean, I thankfully I had grandparents alive uh, well into my 30s. My last grandfather only died a year ago. He was um, 99, almost 100. And I got his history from him. I got my grandmother. She died at 96, and she was lucid to the end. Got her history in depth. I, I mean, I know my family's history, the real people back into the 1850s. What that did for me, getting that family history, what it was was corroboration. And so it's kind of like doing a math problem in different ways. It's like checking my own work. And I think the two can work together very well. But the bottom line is the, the real truth is within us. We know the truth and we can feel it. And then hearing from my parents and having them tell it, it adds another dimension to it. But all it at best really does is corroborate what happens to us. Because the other thing is we can know our history totally well, but if we don't feel what happens to us, it's not really of that much use to us. We have to be able to feel it within and know it within ourselves. And that's where the internal healing process is. It's an internal job. So that, that's just what I wanted to say when, when, when you were talking about that picture analogy, because that's kind of how I flesh out that analogy. But that, that's all I wanted to say. And so now I'm curious to hear what your second part was. And sorry for cutting in there. No, listen, I mean, much though I love the metaphor, I think that you're, you're absolutely correct. And I'm not, because I think you're right. Of course, even if we don't get information, we can get the inner history of our parents by looking at their actions towards us. So uh, thank you for a, a truly great correction. And uh, I think I was seduced by the <laughs> pleasure in the metaphor. Uh, so yes, listen to what he said, uh, because I think that's a much better way of looking at it. Um, so uh, the second thing around getting information from parents or, or anyone really, the, the one thing that Socratic reasoning or philosophical thinking or critical thinking is really great at is in helping to break down defenses. I mean, in general, I think if you can't break down defenses, you and break down sounds like a really aggressive thing, you know, <laughs> shouting at people in the corner or whatever. I don't mean that at all. It can be very gentle and it can involve significant curiosity, but Socratic reasoning is fantastic for that. And, you know, I think the intersection of self-knowledge and philosophy is a very fertile ground. It's somewhat underexplored. You know, the greatest uh, people in psychology tend to have not had philosophical training and the people who've had philosophical training tend not to have done a lot of self-knowledge work, but I I think the intersection is really fruitful. So, for instance, you know, parents will say, um, let's leave the past in the past. Let's not bring up the past. Let's whatever. Right? Let's move on and so on. And one of the things that that is a principle, right? And and if you print, if you make that into a principle, then it becomes universal because they're not claiming it's my preference, but it's a good thing to leave the past in the past. It's, you know, it's, right. it's no point going back to dig up the past. In which case, if they themselves have acted in contradiction to the principle that they're claiming, that's a useful thing to point out. Not Again, not with the goal of cornering them and saying, aha, you hypocrite, but just to say, well, okay, if leaving the past is in, in, in the past is so important, why do you keep bringing up the past in these areas? I'm just curious how that works with the principle. And if they then say, wow, you know, I, I said this to you, but I do the opposite somewhere else, I wonder why, you know, then you can be in a conversation which has moved past the initial dismissal of the question with some sort of usually moral or pseudo-moral um, defense. Uh, and so I think that comparing the principles that are brought up by parents in the moment with their prior actions uh, and looking for ways in which those have contradicted each other, as they almost inevitably will, that can yeah. be very fruitful uh, in helping them to understand that what they're saying is not how they're acting and therefore it's more likely to be a defense and you can move the past that, I think, with some, some uh, dignity. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, good points. I like that. 
All right. Uh, do we have? We, I don't think we have any callers, uh, James. Do we have? Uh, if you'd like to read off any other questions uh, that, that we have, uh, Don Room of chatting. Uh, sure. Do you have the questions that I sent to you earlier, or let me scroll? We don't. Up. We don't have any other callers at the moment. All right. Well, it's fantastic that we've answered everybody's questions forever. That's uh, that's quite a good show. Yeah, it's so satisfying when that happens. Uh, or, oh, sorry, another another thing that parents will say, um, just while we're, I'm looking that up, another thing that parents will say is, um, and, and you'll hear this from a lot of people, you know, we did the best we could with the knowledge that we had. So and, yeah, well, that's that's a very interesting statement, right? So, so the question then is, why, why do we ever fail children in an exam? I mean, they are doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have. So we should never mock children down for failing to get math or science or, or biology questions wrong. Uh, and, um, and also, children should never be faulted because children are doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have and with the additional caveat of them being children, <laughs> which is kind of significant, right. right? So if as a child you were punished for not doing things correctly – then your parents can't logically claim as a principle we were doing the best we could with the knowledge that we had because they punished a child uh, for failing that standard and then they can't claim that standard for themselves when they get older. I mean, it's the basic philosophical, ethical thing. <laughs> I wish I had a better word for it. A thing, uh, which is that you simply cannot conceivably have higher moral standards for children than you have for adults. I mean, this is that, that would be an insane standard to have. And... So parents uh, can't claim, and again, this doesn't mean, you know, jump all over their throats or whatever, but this is something that just has to be dismantled, right? They can't claim, well, we were just doing the best we could with the knowledge that we had, because, you know, you say, well, when I was a kid, if I had a spelling bee, you said you need to prepare for it. If I have a math test, you, you need to prepare for it. And if you don't prepare for it and you do badly, then you need to do better. And what's more important, uh, a spelling bee or a math test when I was in grade four or how to raise your children in a peaceful productive and loving manner uh, so um, again sorry go ahead can i ask you a question sure it's one that that um i think about sometimes i'm wondering if if, the, if you can answer it simply uh <laughs> that's very that optimistic ever, but i will try at what point do people become responsible for their actions and 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 how do you define why they should be responsible for their actions if you think people should ever be responsible for their actions. Like, like yeah, to me, and I can give you a simple answer. As a 24-year-old, as a 48-year-old, you know, uh, that's my question. No, I think, uh, I think you're responsible for your actions when you begin uh, using moral rules on other people. What do you mean? And as you are responsible say, in, in, a, in a very specific way. You are responsible for the moral rules that you inflict on other people. Right, that's that's where you gain responsibility. So somebody who is, uh, you know, has a, a, a mental retardation or is developmentally handicapped in some manner, they're not going to use moral rules to manipulate other people. They're not. I mean, they're just not. So you would never give them responsibility. Somebody who is uh, suffering from some sort of psychosis or who has temporary insanity is not doing what he's doing by inflicting moral rules on other people. He's just maybe lashing out or driving a car off a cliff or something like that. But the moment that you start using moral rules to influence the behavior of other people doesn't i mean manipulative sounds bad like you people just using ethics to manipulate which i think is depressingly common but the moment that you start using moral rules on other people then you have 
moral responsibility because you know what ethics are, you know that they're universal, and you're using them to influence the behavior of others. And if you quote a law, you are subject to the law. That's really, I think, where responsibility lies. So if if parents um, inflict moral rules upon those the, their children or – I don't know what's a, what's a nicer way. If they encourage conformity to uh, universal standards on the part of their children, then they are much in a much greater fashion subject to those universal rules, uh, whatever those rules are. You know, share, be nice, don't hit, don't yell, don't use violence to get what you want, uh, don't be aggressive, don't, you know, don't be selfish, don't you know, listen to your L, whatever it is. So whatever moral rules are being imposed upon children – the parents are then morally responsible for adherence to those rules. Because, of course, if you inflict moral rules that you never intend to follow, uh, that's a truly uh, nasty manipulation uh, that I think has some of the most far-reaching consequences. Because moral rules, being universal, uh, tend to really go deep into the brain, uh, which is why they say, you know, once a Catholic, always a Catholic kind of thing. So does, does that help? It's a great answer. It, it's given me a lot to think about. So basically, it's um, as soon as someone uh, – what you're saying is – you feel as soon as somebody knows that something is wrong or that that they as soon as they know it then they're subject to it and that's when they become No, responsible. sorry, not not if they know it because that's not verifiable. Again, I'm I'm a when they apply a, a to other people. No, yeah, if if they attempt to, if they use ethics to influence other people. Right. Then they are subject to those ethical norms. Know. I'm sorry, could you just repeat? Doesn't that, doesn't that kind of presuppose that they know it, though? They're gonna, for them to start applying it to other people means they have to, at some level, feel it and know it. Well, yeah, so if, if I impose a moral rule on you, then I'm imposing it not as a personal willpower of mine or a personal preference of mine. Like, Daniel, it's morally good that you love chocolate, chocolate chip ice cream. I mean, that would be a silly statement, right? So the moment that I'm... Uh, using ethics and imposing ethical standards upon you, I'm claiming to be an impartial delivery messenger of a universal standard. And if I'm saying that you are subject to this universal ethical standard, the very fact that it's universal means that I must be subject to it too. And the fact that I'm bringing it to you means that I'm more of an expert in it than you are, which is what parents claim to be with their children. Of course, children... Well, let me ask you this. Go ahead. I, I'm thinking of... Um... I've had the chance to work with some people that, that sexually abused young children, and some of them don't feel it's wrong. They feel like, well, you know, I've even heard people say, I wish someone had sexually abused me when I was little because I really was looking for that. Or somebody did sexually abuse me and it was fine, and therefore I don't think it's the wrong thing to do, and I, don't, I think it's okay if other people do this, and, therefore, and they feel like it's fine that they're doing it. Do you, according to that principle you just described, they are really not responsible then. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, because the question is, uh, did because the, the act of sexual abuse, of course, is, as you know, has horrendous physical consequences and, and violation of space consequences and uh, sexual trauma. But one of the things, of course, that it does, as abuse always, always tends to do, is it isolates. And the reason it isolates is you basically have to convince your victim to shut the hell up about what you're doing to them. Yeah, but I mean, I agree with all that. I mean, I think it's wrong, of course. No, but, sorry, no, no, I agree with that. Let me just let me just finish the thought. Um, uh, so, so first of all, you basically have to tell other people to lie, and then you have to say that lying is good. But at a more universal uh, way, the the person who sexually abuses a child 
uh, is um, uh, is saying that the satisfaction of my wants is is the good. And of course, the problem with universalizing that is that sexual abuse is not something the child wants. And so you can't universalize the satisfaction of wants uh, when it conflicts with the satisfaction of other people's wants. So they would have, I think, a tough time uh, because they would basically have to say, you would have to ask them, is, is lying wrong? And they would, I mean, assume, unless they're just going to go completely to say whatever they want, uh, if they're going to say you, that, uh, that, that lying is, is, you know, that it's better not to lie, uh, it's better to be honest, you know, if somebody asks you a direct question, well, then they've contradicted that by making the other person not tell the truth, the victim not tell the truth about their predation. And then you could explore, right, the satisfaction of one's issue, right? So you, it satisfies your need for power, control, sexuality, whatever, at the hands of an innocent, helpless child. So what is the principle behind that? How is that justified? And almost inevitably, somebody will come up with a justification for it. And the moment that somebody comes up with a justification for it, it has to be something that's universal. And uh, in, in that case, it, it's broken by the predation upon the child. Now, um, so there's ways of sort of exploring and examining it, though I certainly agree with you. I mean, there are some people who will say uh, spanking children is, is, I mean, a depressingly large number of people will say that spanking children is really good and effective and positive. And so they, you say, well, are they morally responsible? Well, yes, because you can universalize that. So they say, well, why do you spank children? Well, children's brains are immature, and the best way to train an immature or uh, underfunctioning brain is to spank it. And then you say, okay, so when you get older... Uh, oh, parents, uh, and you start to become forgetful, uh, as aging brains tend to do. Uh, are your adult children allowed to, spankle, uh, to spank you to help you remember where you left your keys or your glasses or your wallet or whatever? And they will say, well, no, <laughs> that's not allowed, right? It's okay. Well, so you have an un underfunctioning brain relative to your children, your adult children, but they're not allowed to spank you. So spanking based upon an underfunctioning brain is not is not valid, is not a valid way of, of getting somebody to learn better. And so this is just how you would explore the moral question with them uh, and get them to really understand that all of their moral reasoning is an ex post facto justification for what they had an impulse to do in the moment. And I think that's where, it's not just a simple thing. Usually it's more more complex, that but was, that would be that my was approach. A great example. Can I cut in? Yeah, yeah. So I want to, because I, 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 it still sounds like it's a bit subjective to me, what you're saying. And, and I'm just curious, like, so you're basically saying someone who's mentally retarded and doesn't know, they could, they doesn't know what they're doing. They, they don't have the whatever it takes to know that it's wrong or something like that. They, they could not be held responsible. But, but well, it seems yeah, to me, I mean, the test for me would be if, if they did not inflict moral standards upon others, then. Right. They could not be held to those moral standards themselves because you wouldn't. Right. I mean, how else would you know whether they understood anything about morality? Uh, I mean, you guess you could ask them questions or whatever, but they might be just answering right. based upon how they feel that day. But the way that you know if somebody understands morality is that they use morality in their personal relationships. And once you start to look for this stuff, you know, you see it everywhere. People are always trying to put universal standards on others to attempt to modify their behavior, and that's where they but gain their moral responsibility. I'm trying to think of an example of someone who doesn't, because some of the some of the the exceptions you gave are someone who is like so psychotic or something like that that they wouldn't know. But my experience is, I mean, I know a lot of like certainly people who are um, psychiatric survivors who have been psychotic. They're all for holding people responsible for their actions when they're insane, and they're saying, "Don't bring them to the mental hospital. Put them in jail. They're responsible. They beat someone up. They go to jail. It doesn't matter how nuts they were." And 
So, well, uh, sorry, but wait, 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 wait. Sorry, you're, you're bringing another factor in, though. And I appreciate this great. You're bringing jail into the conversation, which is not quite the same as moral responsibility. I mean, you can I violate moral standards without going to jail, and you can so go to jail without having violated moral standards. So you may want to – somebody may have no moral responsibility and still yeah. be an incredibly dangerous predator, in which case you would put them in some sort of confined area. I don't know, in a free society, what it would look like. We call it jail for now. But you wouldn't do that because they were morally evil. You would do that in the same way that you would quarantine someone for being sick or in the same way that you would lock up a rabid dog, uh, not because the dog is morally evil, uh, but just because they're a dangerous predator to have in the environment. Nicely said. Yeah, you got me there because I I actually think this whole idea of jail, the way that jail is looked at as a moral punishment is completely idiotic. So you're right. And then I was getting into a side topic and you, you nailed it. I guess I still just don't feel totally satisfied with this idea of when do people become responsible and what is the cutoff? And I know you described it well, but I'm trying to, I guess you undid some of my exceptions. And the the example of spanking, that was a good one. Does someone want to be spanked when they're getting old? If, even if they think it's okay to spank kids. Um, Hmm. I wonder. Well, are there examples where you think uh, a five-year-old could be held responsible for punching another kid? D- do you know what I mean? Oh yes, what absolutely. The, yes, no, uh, absolutely. You know, so let's 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 take a five-year-old. And what? And, and then, in, then it comes down to what does responsibility mean? I guess maybe that's even the deeper question that I'm after. Because yes, I do think five-year-olds can know what they're doing. I think two-year-olds can know what they're doing. Yeah, a lot of no. Time, listen, I mean, they uh, know my uh, yeah, by, my daughter. Uh, own ethical standards by doing to, they're, they're not following the golden rule, basically of doing unto others yeah, what they would like look, to let's, do unto them. Let's take a let's take the example of a five year old who has a three year old brother, and the five year old yeah. gives a stern lecture to the three year old brother when the three year old brother has a popsicle and says that it's really important for brothers to share. Right, and then won't share it right. himself. And then he won't share himself. Well, now he's morally responsible for that, right? Right. And yeah. I mean, I as, guess, as a father myself, I'm having these conversations with my daughter all the time about the standards that she imposes, the standard that she subjects herself to, and noting that it is a human instinct, I believe. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to get. Conversations about human nature are always so tricky and slippery. But I think no. that it's almost, it's almost inevitable for people to attempt to create standards to control other people's behavior and then to exempt themselves from those self-same standards, right? So if sure. I can convince my, my little brother that he should share his popsicle, I get popsicle, and then I'm going to change right. my tune when I get my popsicle so that I get to keep more of my popsicle. I mean, using ethical arguments is such a great way to get resources from people that it's almost, sure. <laughs> it's almost inevitable for people to try. But uh, yeah, so yes, I can absolutely uh, believe and accept that a five-year-old has moral responsibility. I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the correction for it is significantly different than it would be for an adult, of course. But yeah, the moment you, the moment you sort of pick up the sword, then you, <laughs> you're, you're part of the combat, so to speak. Right. And an interesting word that you use, the correction for it, because this is, I think that is the deeper question I'm getting at. What does being responsible mean? What is the appropriate action for other people or society or friends or parents or children to take siblings? And so that, that, I guess, is what I'm actually getting at, probably. That's the deeper question, is if someone is responsible, to use that, that nebulous kind of word. Because well, well, let me ask you this, then, just a specific question. How do you define responsibility? What does it mean? Um, well, the responsibility is the infliction of responsibility. <laughs> That's what being responsible is. The moment that you inflict responsibility on other people, you have to accept it yourself. 
right? So the moment that, let's say, the moment a parent punishes a child, then the parent is accepting universal morality, the parent is accepting moral responsibility, and the parent is accepting negative consequences for violations of universal standards. Right. I mean, right. so, so like, if you inflict responsibility on others, then you are responsible because you've held it up as a value. You know what it means. You know who it applies right. to. You're an expert in the subject and so on, right? Right. And yes, and I do think people have a right to protect themselves and maybe society has a right to protect itself, one could argue. And But it's like, what is the – what is then therefore the responsible action for others when someone is is violating, is, is responsible ooh, for ooh, I know this one. Oh, I know this one. Can I? Can I? Can I? Please. Yes, you in the back with your hand in the air. Can I just? uh, I'll just take a very brief swing at this, and then again, I'll I'll leave it to your judgment as to whether it's valuable or not. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm curious. So, there are people when you bring hypocrisy to their attention, they are mortified. (laughs) Right? They're just like, oh my goodness, what have I done? And, and this is true mm-hmm. of parents as well. I mean, I get emails from people all the time who say, you know, my parents spanked me and I brought up this moral spanking argument about when they get old and so on. And they're like, wow, ugh, I never thought of it that way. You put the plug right in the hole. I am appalled at what I did because I would be horrified if you did that to me in exactly the same moral circumstances. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, so, and, and those, those people are like appalled at what they have done and that that to me is integrity that's you know we, we're not responsible for knowledge that we don't have if it's readily available or whatever right uh, sorry, so so there are those people who when you point out that they have um, used ethics while exempting themselves particularly when they've used it against children while exempting themselves as adults i mean it's pretty wretched so those people i think you can really work with and hopefully work to improve the human condition the quality of the relationship and and all of that kind of stuff but there are other people who will never admit that, who will continue to manipulate, you know, whether it's the one in 25 sociopaths or not, I don't know what the overlap is, but it's probably not too uh, too separate. But there are those people who will continue to use moral manipulation as a method for uh, controlling and, and getting resources out of others and will not feel any guilt or shame or remorse when the hypocrisy of their position is pointed out, but will simply change the subject, make up new moral rules, and will never admit anything. And I think those people, um, you, you, you're just always going to be in danger around. Right. Hmm. Now, it's very interesting the way you've divided it up. So it's basically the people who can see the error of their ways. They're the ones that you can work with, and the people that, that can't, they're done for. Well, counter or won't, who knows? But um, uh, that to me is, and it, you know, it can take a little bit of time. I, I'm generally a big fan of the first 24 hours. Uh, for me, uh, you know, and if you surprise someone with new information, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a, any kind of exact guide. But to me, it's very rare that people say, well, you know, my, you know, my friend has been denying his, you know, moral hypocrisy for three years. But then he woke up one morning and said, oh, my goodness, right? Because defenses tend to harden. And whatever you defend against, you tend to become better at defending against, not worse. So I think the, the, the sort of shock of that connection is usually really important at the beginning. Over time, I, you know, I think there's a law of diminishing returns in expecting 
sudden growth out of people who have been defending themselves against basic propositions for a long time. But I like it because I don't have to prove anything in the abstract, and I don't have to convince people of things that they're in their heads. You simply, again, as an empiricist, you just have to look at their actions. Oh, you've been inflicting moral rules on children. Well, you must be infinitely more subject to those moral rules because you're an adult and they're a child. You know, their brains are developing and you're the authority figure and you've had lots of time to prepare and you're the adult and you've got a mature brain and all that. So, uh, and this is really the, one of the great <laughs> drives of this show is to get people to understand that we cannot have higher moral rules for children than we do for adults. And it's something that's almost embarrassing to say. It's, <laughs> it's like going to uh, a clothing designer and saying, you know, you really do have to design clothes for children that are smaller. Because you see children mm -hmm. are small. I mean, it's, it's like weirdly patiently having to explain these basic things to, to clothing manufacturers and them going, oh, that's ridiculous. Children are bigger than adults. And it's like, blah, blah, blah. it's the same thing in ethics. But, but it's just one of these things that's really hard because so much of society depends on children uh, having higher moral standards than adults. Right. That's interesting. Or I'm thinking with the clothing designer, uh, probably of – a more realistic response would be for them. Yes, they're smaller, but they're going to grow into their clothes. They're going to grow into them. We give them adult size clothes, but they're going to grow into them. This is their responsibility to grow into those clothes. Yeah, but they drag their feet and they fall all over the place. Well, that's because they haven't grown into them yet, but they've got to learn to grow into them. Right, and until they grow into them, we're going to keep stretching them. Daniel, I think your right. facility with analogies, you, have, you are now the official metaphor wrangler of Free Domain Radio. Mm -hmm. When we have a challenge, we will just ping you on Skype and you will clarify the metaphors. So that's a, that's a good that's way of putting it. That's all those years of dream analysis. I've lived it is. In, I've lived in metaphors. Seriously. Yeah, I, I really think all those years of dream analysis, I, I love analogies because, my God, I saw every single fucked up thing inside of myself in analogy and having to sort it out and realize, ooh. Yeah, I know. I think uh, I'm sometimes praised for my fluidity of, of metaphors, and uh, that simply comes out. I mean, it's, it's the same place that generates metaphors and analogies. It's the same place that generates the THX nightly experience of your dreams. So um, that's a good yeah. thing that you get, I think, of that, uh, get out of yeah. that, that going to the place. Yeah, and I think everybody, right. is, okay. everybody is, a, is a genius in their dreams. Everybody has a genius ability with metaphor. I think the more we, we become comfortable in that world, the more this stuff becomes very easy in the outside world. And analogies become a sort of a simple way to look at life. Yes, and analogies are incredible for philosophy. I mean, a yeah, philosopher who I think is completely terrible is Plato, but he has the most incredible metaphors and analogies, like the metaphor of the cave and, and all the, the, the gold, silver, and bronze people in, in his perfect totalitarian society. He's uh, such a brilliant um, <laughs> metaphor generator that uh, uh -huh. he has uh, in a place among the greats simply because he's so compelling. So if you can get reason together with metaphor, you know, <laughs> I think you've really cornered uh, the progress of the species. But um, so, yeah, I think people should pay more attention to that. So, party's over? Party's over, man. Um, great to have you back. Listen, you are welcome anytime. Um, I just really wanted to, to remind people um, you can get Daniel's great, great, get them, uh, DVDs at iRareSoul.com. And um, I'm really looking forward to the new uh, film. Uh, if you could let me know when it's out, of course, I'll... I'll get them and add them to my collection, and maybe we can have a show and, and talk about it. And, you know, help promote it. You know, I mean, it's good to get Ooh, the, uh, the Skyflare publicity uh, out there for whatever it is that you're doing. And, uh, I, you know, whatever minor internet muscle I have, I'd like to put behind your activities. And so you're welcome thank back you. anytime. Thank you for taking the time this morning. Hey, and this uh, was uh, great answers.
Okay, well, I'll be seeing you around the virtual world. All right, take care. And uh, remember, Daniel Mackler, on his travels, always needs a couch. So feel free to get in contact with him if you have something particularly plush and comfortable. Thank you, all of the callers, as usual, uh, for your, your openness, your honesty, your vulnerability. It is a challenging medium to open your heart to. Uh, because it's not typed, it's vocal, and so I really, as always, hugely want to express my deep, deep, deep appreciation for you people who make this show really what it is. Uh, so thank you to the listeners. Thank you, to James, as always. And have yourselves a great week, everyone. Thank you, Danny. Boy, the pipes are calling. Oh, I wasn't going to do that, but then I did. And have yourself a great week, everyone. Thank you to all the donors. I will talk to you soon. <laughs>